Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, does Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? The Graveyard Rats by Henry Kuttner. Old Masson, the caretaker of one of Salem's oldest and most neglected cemeteries, had a feud with the rats. Generations ago, they had come up from the wharves and settled in the graveyard, a colony of abnormally large rats. And when Masson had taken charge, after the inexplicable disappearance of the former caretaker, he decided that they must go. At first, he set traps for them and put poisoned food by their burrows, and later he tried to shoot them. But it did no good. The rats stayed, multiplying and overrunning the graveyard with their ravenous hordes. They were large, even for the Moose Stecumanus, which sometimes measures fifteen inches in length, exclusive of the naked pink and grey tail. Masson had caught glimpses of some as large as good-sized cats, and when, once or twice, the grave-diggers had uncovered their burrows, the malodorous tunnels were large enough to enable a man to crawl into them on his hands and knees. The ships that had come generations ago from distant ports to the rotting Salem wharves had brought strange cargoes. Masson wondered sometimes at the extraordinary size of these burrows. He recalled certain vaguely disturbing tales he had heard since coming to ancient, witch-haunted Salem. Tales of a moribund, inhuman life that was said to exist in forgotten burrows in the earth. The old days when Cotton Mather had hunted down the evil cults that worshipped Hecate and the dark Magna Mater in frightful orgies had passed, but dark gabled houses still leaned perilously towards each other over narrow cobbled streets, and blasphemous secrets and mysteries were said to be hidden in subterranean cellars and caverns, where forgotten pagan rites were still celebrated in defiance of law and sanity. Wagging their grey heads wisely, the elders declared that there were worse things than rats and maggots crawling in the unhallowed earth of the ancient Salem cemeteries. And then, too, there was this curious dread of the rats. Masson disliked and respected the ferocious little rodents, for he knew the danger that lurked in their flashing, needle-sharp fangs, but he could not understand the inexplicable horror which the oldsters held for deserted, rat-infested houses. He had heard vague rumours of ghoulish beings that dwelt far underground and that had the power of commanding the rats, marshalling them like horrible armies. The rats, the old men whispered, were below Salem. Bodies had been stolen from graves for nocturnal subterranean feasts, they said. The myth of the Pied Piper is a fable that hides a blasphemous horror. And the black pits of Avernus have brought forth hell-spawned monstrosities that never venture into the light of day. Masson paid little attention to these tales. He did not fraternise with his neighbours, and, in fact, did all he could to hide the existence of the rats from intruders. Investigation, he realised, would undoubtedly mean the opening of many graves, and while some of the gnawed empty coffins could be attributed to the activities of the rats, 
Masson might find it difficult to explain the mutilated bodies that lay in some of the coffins. The purest gold is used in filling teeth, and this gold is not removed when a man is buried. Clothing, of course, is another matter, for usually the undertaker provides a plain broadcloth suit that is cheap and easily recognisable. But gold is another matter, and sometimes, too, there were medical students and less reputable doctors who were in need of cadavers and not over-scrupulous as to where these were obtained. So far, Masson had successfully managed to discourage investigation. He had fiercely denied the existence of the rats, even though they sometimes robbed him of his prey. Masson did not care what happened to the bodies after he had performed his gruesome thefts, but the rats inevitably dragged away the whole cadaver through the hole they gnawed in the coffin. The size of these burrows occasionally worried Masson, then, too, there was the curious circumstance of the coffins always being gnawed open at the end, never at the side or top. It was almost as though the rats were working under the direction of some impossibly intelligent leader. Now he stood in an open grave and threw a last sprinkling of wet earth on the heap beside the pit. It was raining, a slow, cold drizzle, that for weeks had been descending from soggy black clouds. The graveyard was a slough of yellow sucking mud from which the rain-washed tombstones stood up in irregular battalions. The rats had retreated to their burrows and Masson had not seen one for days, but his gaunt, unshaven face was set in frowning lines. The coffin on which he was standing was a wooden one, the body had been buried several days earlier, but Masson had not dared to disinter it before. A relative of the dead man had been coming to the grave at intervals, even in the drenching rain, but he would hardly come at this late hour, no matter how much grief he might be suffering, Masson thought, grinning wryly. He straightened and laid the shovel aside. From the hill on which the ancient graveyard lay, he could see the lights of Salem flickering dimly through the downpour. He drew a flashlight from his pocket. He would need light now. Taking up the spade, he bent and examined the fastenings of the coffin. Abruptly he stiffened. Beneath his feet he sensed an unquiet stirring and scratching, as though something were moving within the coffin. For a moment a pang of superstitious fear shot through Masson, and then rage replaced it as he realised the significance of the sound. The rats had forestalled him again. In a paroxysm of anger, Masson wrenched at the fastenings of the coffin. He got the sharp edge of the shovel under the lid and pried it up until he could finish the job with his hands. Then he sent the flashlight's cold beam darting down into the coffin. Rain spattered against the white satin lining. The coffin was empty. Masson saw a flicker of movement at the head of the case and darted the light in that direction. The end of the sarcophagus had been gnawed through and a gaping hole led into darkness. 
A black shoe, limp and dragging, was disappearing as Masson watched, and abruptly he realised that the rats had forestalled him by only a few minutes. He fell on his hands and knees and made a hasty clutch at the shoe, and the flashlight incontinently fell into the coffin and went out. The shoe was tugged from his grasp. He heard a sharp, excited squealing, and then he had the flashlight again and was darting its light into the burrow. It was a large one. It had to be, or the corpse could not have been dragged along it. Masson wondered at the size of the rats that could carry away a man's body, but the thought of the loaded revolver in his pocket fortified him. Probably if the corpse had been an ordinary one, Masson would have left the rats with their spoils rather than venture into the narrow burrow. But he remembered an especially fine set of cufflinks he had observed, as well as a stick-pin that was undoubtedly a genuine pearl. With scarcely a pause he clipped the flashlight to his belt and crept into the burrow. It was a tight fit, but he managed to squeeze himself along. Ahead of him, in the flashlight's glow, he could see the shoes dragging along the wet earth of the bottom of the tunnel. He crept along the burrow as rapidly as he could, occasionally barely able to squeeze his lean body through the narrow walls. The air was overpowering with its musty stench of carrion. If he could not reach the corpse in a minute, Masson decided he would turn back. Belated fears were beginning to crawl, maggot-like within his mind, but greed urged him on. He crawled forward, several times passing the mouth of adjoining tunnels. The walls of the burrow were damp and slimy, and twice lumps of dirt dropped behind him. The second time he paused and screwed his head around to look back. He could see nothing, of course, until he had unhooked a flashlight from his belt and reversed it. Several clods lay on the ground behind him, and the danger of his position suddenly became real and terrifying. With thoughts of a cave-in making his pulse race, he decided to abandon the pursuit, even though he had almost overtaken the corpse and the invisible things that pulled it. But he had overlooked one thing. The burrow was too narrow to allow him to turn. Panic touched him briefly, but he remembered a side tunnel he had just passed and backed awkwardly along the tunnel until he came to it. He thrust his legs into it, backing until he found himself able to turn. Then he hurriedly began to retrace his way, although his knees were bruised and painful. Agonizing pain shot through his leg. He felt sharp teeth sink into his flesh and kicked out frantically. There was a shrill squealing and the scurry of many feet. Flashing the light behind him, Masson caught his breath in a sob of fear as he saw a dozen great rats watching him intently, their slitted eyes glittering in the light. They were great, misshapen things, as large as cats, and behind them he caught a glimpse of a dark shape that stirred and moved swiftly aside into the shadow, and he shuddered at the unbelievable size of the thing. The light had held them for a moment, but they were edging closer, their teeth dull orange in the pale light. 
Masson tugged at his pistol, managed to extricate it from his pocket, and aimed carefully. It was an awkward position, and he tried to press his feet into the soggy sides of the burrow so that he should not inadvertently send a bullet into one of them. The rolling thunder of the shot deafened him for a time, and the clouds of smoke set him coughing. When he could hear again, and the smoke had cleared, he saw that the rats were gone. He put the pistol back and began to creep swiftly along the tunnel, and then, with a scurry and a rush, they were upon him again. They swarmed over his legs, biting and squealing insanely, and the masson shrieked horribly as he snatched for the gun. He fired without aiming, and only luck saved him from blowing a foot off. This time the rats did not retreat so far. But Masson was crawling as swiftly as he could along the burrow, ready to fire again at the first sound of another attack. There was a patter of feet, and he sent the light stabbing back of him. A great grey rat paused and watched him. Its long, ragged whiskers twitched, and its scabrous, naked tail was moving slowly from side to side. Masson shouted, and the rat retreated. He crawled on, pausing briefly, the black gap of a side tunnel at his elbow, as he made out a shapeless huddle on the damp clay a few yards ahead. For a second he thought it was a mass of earth that had been dislodged from the roof, and then he recognized it as a human body. It was a brown and shriveled mummy, and with a dreadful, unbelieving shock, Masson realized that it was moving, it was crawling towards him, and in the pale glow of the flashlight the man saw a frightful gargoyle face thrust into his own. It was the passionless, death's-head skull of a long-dead corpse, instinct with hellish life and the glazed eyes, swollen and bulbous, betrayed the thing's blindness. It made a faint groaning sound as it crawled towards Masson, stretching its ragged and granulated lips in a grin of dreadful hunger. And Masson was frozen with abysmal fear and loathing. Just before the horror touched him, Masson flung himself frantically into the burrow at his side, he heard a scrambling noise at his heels, and the thing groaned dully as it came after him. Masson, glancing over his shoulder, screamed and propelled himself desperately through the narrow burrow. He crawled along awkwardly, sharp stones cutting his hands and knees. Dirt showered into his eyes, but he dared not pause even for a moment. He scrambled on, gasping, cursing, and praying hysterically. Squealing triumphantly, the rats came at him, horrible hunger in their eyes. Masson almost succumbed to their vicious teeth before he succeeded in beating them away from him. The passage was narrowing, and in a frenzy of terror he kicked and screamed and fired until a hammer clicked on an empty shell, but he had driven them off. He found himself crawling under a great stone embedded in the roof that dug cruelly into his back. It moved a little as his weight struck it, and an idea flashed into Masson's fright-crazed mind. If he could bring down the stone so that it blocked the tunnel! The earth was wet and soggy from the rains, and he hunched himself half upright and dug away at the dirt around the stone. The rats were coming closer, 
He saw their eyes glowing in the reflection of the flashlight's beam. Still he clawed frantically at the earth. The stone was giving. He tugged at it and it rocked in its foundation. A rat was approaching, the monster he had already glimpsed. Grey and leprous and hideous, it crept forward with its orange teeth bared. And in its wake came the blind, dead thing groaning as it crawled. Masson gave a last frantic tug at the stone. He felt it slide downward, and then he went scrambling along the tunnel. Behind him, the stone crashed down, and he heard a sudden, frightful shriek of agony. Clods showered on his legs. A heavy weight fell on his feet, and he dragged them free with difficulty. The entire tunnel was collapsing. Gasping with fear, Masson threw himself forward as the soggy earth collapsed at his heels. The tunnel narrowed until he could barely use his hands and legs to propel himself. He wriggled forward like an eel and suddenly felt satin tearing beneath his clawing fingers, and then his head crashed against something that barred his path. He moved his legs, discovering that they were not pinned under the collapsed earth. He was lying flat on his stomach, and when he tried to raise himself, he found that the roof was only a few inches from his back. Panic shot through him. When the blind horror had blocked his path, he had flung himself desperately into a side tunnel, a tunnel that had no outlet. He was in a coffin, an empty coffin, into which he had crept through the hole the rats had gnawed in its end. He tried to turn on his back and found that he could not. The lid of the coffin pinned him down inexorably. Then he braced himself and strained at the coffin lid. It was immovable, and even if he could escape from the sarcophagus, how could he claw his way up through five feet of hard-packed earth? He found himself gasping. It was terribly fetid, unbearably hot. In a paroxysm of terror he ripped and clawed at the satin until it was shredded. He made a futile attempt to dig with his feet at the earth from the collapsed burrow that blocked his retreat. If he were only able to reverse his position, he might be able to claw his way through to air. Air! White-hot agony lanced through his breast, throbbed in his eyeballs. His head seemed to be swelling, growing larger and larger, and suddenly he heard the exultant squealing of the rats. He began to scream insanely, but he could not drown them out. For a moment he thrashed about hysterically within his narrow prison, and then he was quiet, gasping for air. His eyelids closed, his blackened tongue protruded, and he sank down into the blackness of death, with the mad squealing of the rats dinning in his ears. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the long drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back? So let me tell you something about Henry Cutner. He was an American writer known for his prolific contribution to the science fiction and fantasy genres during the mid-20th century. He was born on April 7th, 1915 in Los Angeles, California, and passed away on February the 4th, 1958. And despite his relatively short life, 
he's he left a remarkable body of work that le left a lasting Im impact on the world of uh, speculative fiction. His writing career began in the 1930s during the golden age of science fiction. He initially gained recognition for his short stories, which appeared in pulp magazines like Weird Tales and Astounding Science Fiction. One of his earliest and most famous works was the short story The Graveyard Rats, which you've just heard, published in 1936, which showcased his talent for crafting atmospheric and eerie tales. Henry Kuttner is perhaps best known for collaborations with his wife, C.L. Moore, under various pseudonyms such as Lewis Paget. Together they produced a remarkable body of work that included science fiction, fantasy and horror. One of their most famous creations is Gallagher Galloway, a character with a unique ability to understand and manipulate machines. He was a very versatile writer and he could do space opera, supernatural horror, one of his notable works were The Twonky, a science fiction novella that explores the implications of a malevolent household appliance, and Mimsy were the Borogroves, um, you, you must get that quote, a short story that delves into the idea of time travel and its impact on young children. It's from the um, Jabberwock, isn't it, you know, by uh, Lewis Carroll. These stories, amongst others, that's a title only. Yeah. He died, he was only 42, and he had a heart attack. There's more to be said about him, particularly about his... Um, his early life. So he was born in Los Angeles um, and he, the parents of his father, the bookseller Henry Kuttner, had come from Lesno in Prussia and lived in San Francisco since 1859. His mother, uh, Annie Levy, was from Great Britain. Uh, his great-grandfather was a scholar, uh, Joshua Heschel Kuttner, uh, and after his father died, he was relatively poor and he worked in his spare time in the literary agency of his uncle, Lawrence Dorsey. Uh, and it says he was, in fact, his first cousin by marriage, which is, um, can you get a cousin by marriage? Anyway, uh, he's, and it was his first story, The Graveyard Rats, the one we've just heard in 1936. And he, while he was working for the Dorsey agency that he picked up Lee Brackett's early manuscripts off the slush pile. And um, he, yeah, we said he, he was part of the Lovecraft Circle, a group of writers and fans who corresponded with H.P. Lovecraft. They worked together, him and his wife, through the 40s and 50s. El Sprague de Camp, another famous... A lot of these guys, um, when I was reading, devouring science fiction and stuff in the 70s, uh, were very well known to me. You know, people like El Sprague de Camp read loads of his, his stuff. Um, his influences, he's been cited as an influence by Marion Zimmer Bradley. Um, Roger Zelazny, another one of my favourite authors, particularly for... Um, Jack of Shadows, love Jack of Shadows, uh, and lots of his other stuff. Um, he, his friend was Richard Matheson, who wrote I Am Legend, which you'll know from the Will Smith movie if you haven't read the book. The book is, of course, much better, much better. I don't dislike the movie, but the book is like head and shoulders above it. Ray Bradbury said that Kuttner actually wrote the last 300 words of Bradbury's first horror story. So you can see this cluster of American writers at that time writing this kind of thing here. Um, and Bradbury said that Kuttner was a neglected master and a pomegranate writer popping with seeds full of ideas. That's a very Bradbury-esque sentence. William S. Burroughs' novel The Ticket That Exploded contains direct quotes from Kuttner regarding the happy cloak parasitic pleasure monster from the Venusian Seas. Fair enough. Uh, so um, a friend of Lovecraft's, he was also a friend of Clark Ashton Smith's, so, and um, we read um, a Clark Ashton Smith last week, uh, The Beast of Averroin, Kuttner, and you can see he's not as Baroque in his language at all as either um, 
not at all as Ashton Smith or Lovecraft. But Cutner, you know, um, Lovecraft had this, um, he, he created the mythos, the Cthulhu mythos, and invited other writers to contribute into this world of these um, uh, unearthly, monstrous cosmic horrors, you know, Cthulhu, um, Yogg-Sothoth and all the rest of them, Nialathotep and all the rest of them. Uh, and he, so he wrote some of the stories within that. He was um, responsible for um, Yod, one of the lesser-known monsters, Vorvados. If you're a Cthulhu mythos fan, you'll know he's a Hydra, and Nyogtha, the Salem horror. So um, there you go. Uh, so he was a bit of a guy. In terms of the story, I think that, you know, when you compare him to Ashton Smith or Lovecraft, who have very distinctive styles, although there is commonality between them in their use of Baroque language. And, and we saw when we talked about Smith that Smith was deliberately using these obscure words and, and um, uh, syntaxes to create, to use words as a, a magic spell. Um, Kuttner's a far more, he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a proper writer, if you like, without, and that isn't, um, that is to say, he's purpose is more uh, prosaic is just to entertain people and if you if you look at the language there it was very straightforward it's really nice language apart from it's about um caught rotting corpses huge rats and uh sliming around in tunnels under the graveyard which collapse on you so it strikes me that that is um this is an example of horror from phobias. Most people don't like rats. Most people have a horror of being buried alive. Most people would not really like to be enclosed in a tunnel, you know, um, that just narrowness. So if you think of stories we've done before, like uh, Magneto Lasky's The Tower, which is a, um, a story based on the fear of vertigo, really. And also um, another one was Basil Copper's um, one about the spider we did. Again, arachnophobia, you know. So it is, and when you go to, I think people have um, um, used some of his techniques. So if you if you ever go in a horror writing class, one of the first things they say is, look at people's fears, you know, fear of heights, fear of spiders, fear of rats, and use those, put those in. And it's certainly a technique that works, because I'm sure that some of you were like, I can't listen to this. It's too horrible. You know, he's in a narrow tunnel with massive rats. Um, so, yeah, I think he does it very effectively. He probably one of the first people. You don't really get that in preceding stuff. I mean, you know, um, the Victorians, I'm thinking, you know, H.G. Wells, um, um, Bram Stoker, Lefanu, M.R. James, Edwardian, you know, generation before Kuttner here. They don't. They don't particularly use phobias. I think um, E.F. Benson does a little bit, um, but not much. So I think this is his. This is his thing. This is his contribution. And probably why he got published. Um, this is a real pity because he was getting his master's degree in the fifties when he died of a heart attack. So real pity. So you never know how long you got left, eh? But if you do, and of course the other thing to say about um, this is a horror story. It's just. It is, a, it is a morality tale as well, and the, many good horror stories are morality tales. I think the function of stories, as I've said many, many times, is 
is to tell us how we should behave. And that includes that good people um, get the rewards for good behaviour, but particularly in the horror genre, bad people are punished, you know. And it, this man's a grave robber. So he gets his just, his poetical, ironical, you know. If he'd, if he'd been a grave robber and been hit by a bus or drowned at sea, you'd be like, okay, well, he was a bad guy, there we go. But the fact that he dies um, very neatly, I know it's a story, very neatly in his own graveyard, led there by his own greed, that is, that is just perfectly done. So anyway, so I think it's a lovely little story, apart from, you know, it's clearly not lovely, but um, it isn't a bad thing at all. So there we are. Um, That's it. So this is October and this will be coming out in October, October now. And, you know, I thought, well, we we do our um, nice, well, you know, more literary stories, classic ghost stories. And there's there's a place for them, and they may be doing those. But I kind of have, I'm having a horror vibe coming on for up until um, up until uh, Halloween itself, my busiest time, as it turns out. But anyway, but then we go into the in the classic Christmas period. So this whole span of the darkening nights until New Year's Eve, um, it's all it's all grist to the mill for me. It's good territory. So I love this time of year. Um, I love. To thee, all seasons shall be sweet, as Coleridge said, eh? But, um, but yeah, I love most seasons. I don't like that January, February. I may have said this before. January, February, March brightens up a bit. It's my birthday. Um, so that's something to look forward to. But, but you know, January, February, ugh. and then we get spring, we get summer, we get autumn, we get the early winter. Love all of them. Anyway, I hope you're, I was going to say, busy. Well, I hope you're busy if you want to be busy. If you don't want to be busy, um, no. I've got a big deal tonight. I'm actually um, doing a, a show. I'm interviewing Grace Dent for part of her um, Comfort Eating. She's got a podcast called Comfort Eating. You might want to, completely different to this, but you might want to go and listen to that. And she's very funny, Grace. And um, so looking forward to that tonight. The Queen turned up at her first one. So I don't know what I'll do if the King turns up at this one. Um, but... Um, Probably won't because it's in Carlisle. So anyway, I'm a bit bit nervous, but uh, it'll be right. It'll be right. Okay. I'm, yeah, I'm not going to have a drink beforehand. That would just go. You can see how terribly wrong that might go. But no, 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 it'll be fine. Sheila says I've got to go and get my hair cut. So I better go and do that now. consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts than on YouTube. 
But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.